Good morning. How's everybody doing? Mm, good to see you. My name's Carl. I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. I'm glad you guys are here with us. I'm eager to look at this text with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be, like Jeff read, in the 30th chapter of the book of Psalms, so Psalm 30. You can turn there in your Bible or in your device if you'd like as I share with you a quick story that I think will help kind of get us in the right frame of mind. So I want you to imagine, if you will, myself and my son, Taylor, at age 13. Today, he celebrates his 19th birthday, so if you see him after church and give him a hard time, you can do that. But when he was 13, he and I were floating down a river in Arkansas, the Buffalo River. And when I say floating, I mean floating. Like, I don't mean on a boat, in a canoe, on a raft. I mean literally bodies in the water floating down the river, life vests on, no other supplies or food or anything like that. And you say, Carl, sounds like there's a little more to this story. Sounds like something else happened before you were floating down the river, Carl. There was, but I don't really want you to concern yourself with that part of the story. What I want you to focus on is what I'm gonna get to, which is the fact that we were rescued. We were rescued out of the river. So we're floating down the river. The temperature of the water is in like the low 50s. It's very cold water. And as we're floating, it kind of just pulls all the heat out of our bodies and we start to shiver and have like muscle spasms. And we think, gosh, well, I think we might get hypothermia. So we get out, we warm up in the sun, we get back in. And this goes on for six or seven hours. And you say, Carl, wouldn't it be better if you had a boat or a raft or a canoe or maybe some camping gear. Sounds like perhaps you could be doing lots of other things that might be more productive than floating down a river. Listen, you stop interrupting me. So we're floating down the river and this goes on for six, seven hours. And then we finally hear the sound of like an outboard motor on a boat. Yes. And here comes a boat. It's like this flat bottom fishing boat with these two guys on it who look like they probably grew up in these backwards of Arkansas. And wait, Carl, how come they get a boat? Why don't you have a boat? If you interrupt me one more time. <laughs> so these guys pull up and the first thing the guy driving the boat says to me is, hey man, looks like you're wading kind of deep there, which was true. We were wading kind of deep. But that's not the point. Get me in your boat, it's freezing. So they pull us up into the boat. They give up all of their time that day. They give up their energy. They really expend a lot of grace and mercy and help to us to get us where we were going initially. Now, I share that story because Psalm 30 is similar. Psalm 30, the psalmist is dealing with some sort of calamity, some sort of difficulty that he's rescued from. And he doesn't really tell us what the calamity is. He doesn't really tell us what's the deal because he doesn't care about that. He doesn't want you to focus on that. He wants you to focus on the fact that God rescued him and pulled him out of this difficulty. Now, most scholars and most commentators will agree that it's probably physical illness that he was dealing with, and we'll see why. But generally speaking, he doesn't tell us. He does not tell us what the deal is because that's not the point. So let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We're grateful for this morning, this opportunity that we have to open your word, to study it together. We pray that you'll be near to us as we do. That as each of us comes in here with different difficulties and frustrations and struggles, irritations, distractions, Lord, we pray that you will, by your spirit, calm our hearts, that we might sit under your word, that we might be encouraged and reminded that you are good, that you are deliverer, that you are gracious, and all these things are true about you. 
And so we pray that you'll be with us. Lord, I pray in particular that you'll give me the wisdom and the strength to speak correctly about your word this morning and that your name would be made great as we gather. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this. Amen. Okay, so let's get into the text. We begin with the title. The title of, uh, of Psalm 30 reads like this, a psalm of David, a song of the dedication of the temple. So immediately we're kind of presented with this quandary, right? David writing a psalm for the dedication of the temple? Well, he doesn't build the temple. The temple isn't built yet. His son Solomon will build the temple, but it's not done yet. So how is it that David is doing this? Well, first of all, we know that David knew Solomon was going to be the one to build the temple. He knows that because God told him in 2 Samuel 7. We also know that David was the one who gathered and prepared a lot of the materials for the building of the temple. We know that from 1 Chronicles 22. So it doesn't seem completely out of the realm of possibility that indeed David would have written this for the dedication of the temple. And indeed, that's what it says. So let's keep going. Let's look at these first three verses one at a time. Verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. What does that mean? Well, he's just saying, God, I will worship you because you rescued and redeemed me. That's what it means. Most of the verses in this psalm mean what they say. There's not a lot of hidden meaning, but I do want us to think as deeply as we can about each of these words that God has given us. So what does it mean to extol? He uses this word. It means to enthusiastically praise and to glorify. I'll give you an example. On Thanksgiving Day, a couple Thursdays ago, my wife, my daughter, and myself had the opportunity to go to a Cowboys game at AT AT&T Stadium, which I've always wanted to go there. It's a cool building. It's real big. It's famous. It's super expensive. It's all kinds of engineering and crazy things that they did to build that place. All kinds of cool technology, giant screen hanging over the thing. I'm very excited to go and see this building and see all this stuff and experience this. And we have some very gracious friends who gave us tickets, gave us a parking pass, and we were able to go and check it out. So we get there. Sure enough, the building is crazy. It's amazing. Looking at these gigantic structures that hold all the weight of this building up blows my mind. This humongous, crazy screen that literally distracts you from paying attention to whatever it was that was happening, something on the field, those two football teams or something, whatever. Building's cool, screen's great, game. Now, it's the Dallas Cowboys playing against the Washington football team. That's what they're called. Don't ask me, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy, okay? So they're playing, and we do what good fans should do. When the Cowboys do something good, we stand up and we cheer and we clap. Yeah. And when they don't do something good or something bad happens to them, we sit quietly. The first one happened like twice. The second one happened like 873 times. It's not up to me. I'm not the guy, once again. So that's what everyone's doing. They're being good fans. But one section over, about five rows down, is this guy, and he is into it. He's got all of the Dallas Cowboys stuff on. He's got the jersey. He's got the gloves. He's got the hat. He's got his wife and her jersey. And he can't sit down because he's so excited. And he gets to cheer like three times. And he gets to yell at the refs like 100 times. He is extolling the Cowboys. He is enthusiastically praising. He was doing it way more than everyone else. That's extolling. Now, ironically, this guy leaves about halfway through the fourth quarter because he can't, he can't take it anymore. He's kind of trudging up the stairs with shoulders slumped. I kind of, that's all I can think of was the Charlie Brown song as he's leaving the stadium shaking his head. But you get the idea. That's what extolling is. And he says, for you have drawn me up. What does this mean? Well, it's the image of drawing water out of a well, right? It's the idea that someone has to pull the water 
in a bucket out of the well. Otherwise, the water that's down there is useless. It's not helpful to anyone. It can't do anything. It's not valuable until it has been pulled up. And so that's what he's talking about. God has drawn him up, right? Everything that needs to be done for that water to be valuable and useful has to be done by the person who's pulling it up. And that's what God is doing. He's drawing him up. And so in a sense, the psalmist is saying, God, because you have raised me up, I will raise you up. I will worship and glorify your name because you have raised me up. And then he says, you have not let my foes rejoice over me. What does that mean? Well, imagine what you thought when you first heard that SEAL Team 6 had located Osama bin Laden and had killed him. There was, there was celebration in the United States that day. There was celebration around the world. People were excited and glad that this wicked, evil person who'd masterminded the 9-11 attacks, who had worked out all kinds of terrorist attacks on, on Western civilization around the world, that this man had finally kind of met earthly justice. They were excited and happy, right? That is what it means to rejoice over your foes. Or if you prefer like a less murdery example, imagine when you play Monopoly, you know, the board game that you play with your family for like 13 hours and nobody ever actually wins. But you've got boardwalk and park place and you've got seven hotels and 37 houses on that bad boy and you're just waiting. Man, somebody's gonna land on this sucker. Mm, let's do this. And then somebody finally does. And like, yeah, grandma, you owe me $84,000. Looks like you're gonna have to mortgage all those railroads after all. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Monopoly. Right, that, that feeling that you have. Now, if you don't have that feeling, it's because you love Jesus. But that feeling that you have, that's, to, that's what it means to rejoice over your enemies. So verse one is the psalmist saying to God that he will worship God because God has rescued him. That's what he's saying. Verse two, O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. What does this verse mean? Exactly what it says, right? This verse is the one that scholars will use to point to the idea that it's illness, that's physical ailment that the, that the uh, psalmist is dealing with. And rightly so, because the word that's translated into healed here, that Hebrew word is always used to refer to physical healing, something, fixing something that's broken or ill, repairing it, restoring it, these kind of things. And so he says that in his suffering, he turned to the Lord and that God was gracious to respond with suffering. Now there's two things that I want you to notice here in verse two. The first one is that we should not read this verse and think that somehow praying to God for healing is the only method that is somehow this verse is saying, if you're sick, if you're ill, if you are in need of healing, then you should only go to God and hope for the best. Right, we should not be like this family in 2018 in Pennsylvania who had a two-year-old daughter with pneumonia and they chose not to take her to the doctor, but instead to gather with the church and to pray. Now is gathering to the church and praying wrong? No, it's good, it's right, they should. But they should also go to the doctor right? We should go to the doctor. We should avail ourselves of the emergency room. These are means of grace that God has given to us to overcome some of these things. Now, it's a common grace, meaning it's a grace from God that's available to the believer and the unbeliever alike. So we should indeed pray. We should gather with the saints. But yes, we should also go to the doctor. And the second thing I want us to see is that there is indeed a correlation between our prayers and God's action. God says, pray to me, ask me, persist, come to me, tell me what you need, and then I will be faithful to provide for you. And because there is this correlation, we might swing the pendulum too far in one direction or the other on that idea, right? We might say to ourselves that our prayers somehow compel God's actions. 
if I say it, God's got to do it. I'm sick, God, hook it up. He's like, well, I guess I got to. Carl asked me to. That's not how it works, right? God is sovereign. He does what's best. He does not always do what we want him to do. Or we might swing the pendulum the other way and we might say to ourselves, well, God is sovereign. He always does what's best. God knows what he's up to. So there's really no need for us to pray. Let's just chill, go to the doctor and just hope it works out because God is good. Right? That's swinging the pendulum too far the other way because God commands your prayers. He says, when you are in need, come to me, is what he says, right? Okay, verse three. O Lord, you have brought my, up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. What does this verse mean? It means you have rescued me from almost certain death, God. You have rescued me from almost certain death and from among all of those who were perishing, you chose me to have life. So I want us to consider a couple of the phrases that he uses here. First, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. What is Sheol? We've talked about this a few times before. Sheol is this word used in Hebrew theology to indicate the place where people go when they die. Sheol is what happens to you when you die. And then he says, right, you've restored me from among, from among those who have gone down to the pit. What does that mean? What kind of pit is he talking about? A peach pit? Avocado pit? Tar pit? Mosh pit? Armpit? Pit bull? Either the dog or the rapper? No, nobody? Okay. Right, it's literally just a pit in the ground. He's talking about a pit. And again, it has the same kind of meaning as Sheol. It's just this idea of being utterly lost and near death. That's the point that he's making. The psalmist is saying that he was on death's door. He's using a euphemism for death. We have euphemisms that we use for death a lot. There's lots of them, right? Because we don't want to talk about death, we, we talk about it in these silly and funny terms to help alleviate some of the ickiness that we have around talking about death. And I looked this up, I looked up euphemisms for death and there's a bunch and I'm gonna read you a bunch now for funsies. Are you ready? Here we go. One foot in the grave, pushing up daisies, kicking the bucket, shuffled off this mortal coil, for those of you who like Monty Python. On the wrong side of the grass, belly up, the big sleep, bit the dust, sleeping with the fishes, swim with concrete shoes. Those sound kind of soprano-y or godfather-y, right? Bought the farm, cashed in your chips, crossed the Jordan, take a dirt nap, dead as a doornail, entered the homeland, this is a cute one, immortality challenged, kicked the oxygen habit, checked into the horizontal Hilton, that's clever, gave up the ghost, meet your maker, your number is up, shaking hands with Elvis, and the last one, wearing a pine overcoat. Yikes, okay, but again, What's happening is the psalmist is using these terms, going down to Sheol, being raised up from the pit. He's talking about being near death. That's what he's talking about. So let's look at verses one through three together. Let's read through them quickly. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So verses one through three together are saying, God, I will praise you because you have not left me or forsaken me. You heard my prayers and you rescued me. That's what he's saying. But then the psalmist is gonna switch gears on us and instead of talking about his circumstances and how God rescued him, he's instead going to begin to give a little bit of exhortation and instruction to his readers, both his original readers as well as you and I. 
Verse four, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Well, again, this verse means exactly what it says. He's calling on the people of God to join him in celebration. That's what the text means. But one of the implications that I want you to pick up and I want you to notice here is that we ought to remember that, that this is evidence that the people of God are meant to live in community. We are meant to worship God together. It is not an isolated thing that we do as, as living lives of belief and faith. The faith that God has given us is a private faith. It is a personal faith. It's not a private faith. I said that backwards. It is a personal faith, but it is not a private faith, right? It is meant to be lived out with others. And that's part of the reason that we gather together like this on Sunday mornings, to worship God, because we are meant to do this together. We see this in the scriptures. Romans 12, verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26 If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So we're meant to rejoice and to celebrate when God blesses someone else, but that isn't always as easy as it might seem. It seems, of course we should, but what if you're at a job and you have a brother or sister in Christ at that job and they get a promotion, but you don't, and you feel like I deserve one, I've been there just as long as them. Or what if you're single and you're hoping for a spouse and you're praying for a spouse and everyone around you is getting engaged? but not you? Or what if you desire children and you had trouble having children or adoption's been a difficult process? You're having difficulty bringing children into your home. Everybody else is pregnant. Do you still rejoice when God blesses them? Or does your heart wrestle with frustration? Does your heart wrestle with bitterness and anger? What is it that prevents us from being faithful to this idea? Sin, right? We have envy, we have pride. The idea of witnessing God at work in rescuing and redeeming and blessing others should cause our hearts to leap with joy, but it often doesn't because we don't desire to see God work in others. We desire to see God work in us. We want this to be about us, not about God's goodness, not about his mercy. So verse four, the psalmist is exhorting us to worship God along with him because of what God has done for him, not for us. What God has done for him. Verse five, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So this verse essentially saying the same thing two times, different language, different imagery, right? God's anger is for the moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. First, it's important for us to clarify what is meant by God's anger here, right? There's, there are two ways to consider God's anger. One, is that the anger of God is this disciplinary response to the sinfulness of God's people, God disciplining those that he loves. But then there's also the eternal anger of God, the wrath of God that's poured out upon unrepentant sinners. The first one, the discipline of God is clear in the scriptures, Hebrews 12 verse six, which is quoting from Proverbs three, says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And then Job 5, 17 and 18. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters but his hands heal. So this first one is the short-lived discipline of God's people, 
to bring them to repentance. The second, this, this wrath of God is not short-lived. It is eternal. It does not end with the reprieve of some sort of healing. This wrath that's poured out on all sins for all time. It's either poured out upon the sinner themselves so that they are eternally separated from God or it is poured out on Christ on the cross for those who trust and believe in him. And so which one is David talking about? Well, it seems clear he must be the former one, right? Because the whole point of this verse is how brief God's anger lasts. So he must be talking about the discipline of those he loves. Why does he even mention it? Why does he even mention it? Because we are prone to believe that when things are bad, we must be experiencing that second one. God has left us, God has forsaken us, and on and on, we might think. We look at our experiences, we look at our circumstances, and we come to this false conclusion. Our experiences and our feelings are liars. Let me give you an example. When I was 12 or 13 years old, I successfully convinced my parents to buy me a three-wheeler. I don't even think they make those anymore because they're so dangerous. You can get a four-wheeler, but three-wheelers are bananas. But I had one, and we lived on the outskirts of the little town where we lived, and there's nothing but miles and miles of farmlands, fields, and dirt roads that kind of bordered all of those places. So I could ride these dirt roads to my heart's content till I ran out of gas. It was the best. One of the things I learned real quickly was that as you rode around in these farmlands, as you neared a particular farmhouse, right, where the family who owned the land and worked that land would live, most of those families had somewhere between 37 and 42 dogs <laughs> that all lived under the porch and you didn't even know they were there until you arrived on their land. And when you arrived on their land, they were very excited to see you. And by excited, I mean angry and murderous. All they wanted to do was kill you real, real bad. And so I'm driving my three-wheeler down this little dirt road and out from under the porch comes 470,000 dogs all with murder in their eyes, kill the child, right? And I was like, oh my gosh. And I realized I'm going faster than they can run. So I'm good, but they are gonna head me off. So I need to change the angle, get out ahead of them. So I look to the right, what do I see? An empty grassy field, piece of cake. I'll just cut across this field, I'll outrun them, done. Well, turns out it's not a grassy field. It's a 15 foot, V-shaped canal used for irrigating all of these lands. But they've just cut the long grass at the same height as all the other grass because they don't need to announce it as a canal. Everybody knows it's a canal, <laughs> except for me. And so I'm doing 40 miles an hour, I go 15 feet down, I go 15 feet up, flying through the air, at which point the dogs say, the point was to kill him, that has been done. <laughs> and they go and they go back under the porch. Now. I'm dying on the side of the road, and the reason is because I believed what I experienced. I believed what I saw. I believed my senses. My feelings and my experiences are not truth. God's word is truth. So the psalmist is trying to help us to see that how we might feel about things when we are suffering is false. He's reminding us of the truth, that God's anger, his discipline, is just a moment, but his favor, the joy that we will experience with him is a lifetime, it's an eternity. And then he goes on. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Sadness, lament, might come over to your house and spend the night. But tomorrow morning, they leave and it's good again. It's like maybe when your, when your in-laws come over 
And they're going to spend the night unannounced. You're like, oh man, that's great. This is never going to end. They're never leaving. But then in the morning, they pack up their stuff and they get in the car and they leave. And it's fine. It's like that. Now, keep in mind, I said your in-laws. I said my in-laws. My in-laws are great. I love my in-laws. So you guys need to get your act together. Okay? So verse four is telling us that God's discipline is short-lived and that the joy of being with our God will last for an eternity. So let's look at four and five together. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So these two verses are telling us that we should praise God because he is merciful, because he is gracious, even when, especially when, things are bad. The difficulties that we experience are his loving discipline, and they're just a blink of an eye in comparison to the joy that is coming. Verse six, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. So what does this verse mean? Well, he's just saying that before this season of suffering, before he got sick or whatever it is, before that the bad stuff happened, things were good. He was prospering, he was doing well. And he thought arrogantly in his heart that he was so strong that he would never be able to be undone by life circumstances. I'm strong, I got this. Things are good and it's because I'm awesome. The psalmist is turning now from praising God for rescuing him to talking about his sin. He is confessing here. He's confessing that he did not turn to God and praise him when things were going well, but instead he trusted in himself. By way of example, we can see this clearly when we think about God's people, when we think about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. When do God's people cry out to him and ask for help? When things are bad, when they're enslaved, when they're persecuted, right? When do they celebrate God and worship him rightly? Immediately after he rescues them. What do they do when things get good and get stable and prosperous again? They forget God and they go back to their idols. Over and over and over this goes. The psalmist is confessing here that he, like the nation of Israel, was arrogant and prideful in his prosperity. Verse seven. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. So he uses this image of a mountain. What he's talking about, this mountain is kind of a reference about, he's talking about his resolve, his ability to stand firm in the face of adversity. That's what he means by this mountain. He is admitting that this mountain, this ability to stand firm, this ability to resist all of the calamity of life only existed because of God's favor. It was not his own doing that made him feel like he could never be moved, to use his language. But that's exactly what he thought at the time. That is his confession. Just like the makers of the Titanic said, this is an unsinkable ship, right? How many voyages did that ship make? Zero. Another example, I used to play in orchestras for a living. I used to be a professional French horn player before I got into ministry, and I would play anywhere that had an orchestra and was willing to give me money to be in it. So I was in an orchestra in San Angelo, Texas, small city, small orchestra, but actually a decent little group, and they paid pretty well. So if they had a gig, man, I was there. So here I am, sitting in my seat, and I'm sitting next to another French horn player who's really good. He's a good player, but he is the most challenging kind of human. 
super arrogant, super prideful, super frustrating. He thinks he's the best. He is good, but man, can we just be just nice a little? Nope, you can't. But you may or may not know this, but when you are in a large musical group, everybody's got their own music and it's on your stand. And the conductor's in charge of managing things. He's got to be able to say, here's where we're starting. And so the editors will put little letters of the alphabet throughout the music, A, B, C, D, whatever. And so the conductor says, all right, you guys, we're going to start two measures before letter I. And he starts us, and this guy plays in the wrong spot. And the conductor can tell, and he stops. He says, third horn, we're starting two measures before letter I. And this guy says, yeah. I thought, that's not the best way to talk to your boss, but whatever. He starts us again, guy plays in the wrong spot. He says, "Uh, third horn, two measures before letter I. And he says, uh-huh. All right. He starts us again. He plays in the wrong spot again. I'm like, oh, man, this is not going to be good. And he goes, third horn, do you know where we are? And this guy says, I know exactly where we are, and I'm playing it perfectly. And that's what I said. <laughs> and I reached over, and I pointed on his music where he was supposed to be, and he goes, oh. right? That's the same idea, this arrogance, this I'm the, I'm the best. He was good, but his, his experiences told him wrong. He thought he knew what the letter I was. Apparently, he didn't. <laughs> so why does God do this? Why does God ordain and allow suffering? For the same reason he does everything, for his own good, for his own glory, and for the good of those that he loves. It was for the psalmist's good. It was for his joy. It was for his sanctification. It was for his ultimate eternal good that God turned away and allowed this calamity to come into his life. Because what was the result? The result was God rescued him. And then God gave him contrition over his sin. God gave him repentance for his sin and restored him. And the result was praise and honor for the glory of God's name. Verse eight, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. So his response here to his difficulty, he's returning to his difficulty and telling us what was going on. He said, to the Lord I cry, to the Lord I plead for mercy. I do not try to fix it myself. I saw how that went. Instead, I will turn to the one who can fix it. Prayer is his tool. When we look around in our toolbox for how to deal with life's difficulty, the first tool we should pull out is prayer. We should be turning to God in prayer, right? But if we're sick, we should go to the doctor. If we're depressed and despairing, we should talk to others and seek wise counsel. If we can't pay the rent, we should talk to our brothers and sisters and ask for help. We should seek remedy, but we should always run to the Lord in prayer. So the psalmist pleads for mercy from God through prayer. And then in verse nine is how he reasons with God in that prayer. Verse nine, what profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? What's happening in this verse? The psalmist is pleading with God by suggesting it'll actually be better if you were to spare me. He's saying, I will continue to praise you, right? And I won't be able to do that if I'm dead, right? Will the dust that I'm reduced to praise you, right? From the dust you were created to dust you shall return. That's the idea here. He's saying, will the dust that I'm reduced to, will it praise you? No. 
Now, he's not trying to teach on the subject of what's gonna happen when you die. He's just saying to God, if you spare me, there will be one more voice on earth that will sing your praises, God. And isn't that a good reason to save me? And at first glance, if we look at this verse all by itself in isolation from the rest of the psalm, it might kind of seem like, ugh, this guy's bargaining with God. Hey, God, if you hook me up, if you save me, I'll give you some praise. I'll sing some songs about you. Hook it up, right? It might seem like he's bargaining, like a child bargaining with their parent. But in light of the context, if we look in the context of the psalm, we just got finished seeing, I tried to do this on my own and it wasn't good. God was the only source of my hope. God is the only place that I should run. His contrite and repentant heart in this context seems much more likely that he is genuinely, sincerely desiring to see the name of God lifted high and glorified. Verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And again, this verse is straightforward in its meaning, right? He's asking God to hear his prayer and be merciful and help him. But notice what he's doing. He is affirming things that are true about God theologically. He's talking about God's character in the ways that he's reaching out to the Lord. He's saying, hear, O Lord. He's asking him, please hear my prayer. God hears the prayers of the righteous. 1 Peter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 John 5, verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And then he says, be merciful to me. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Titus 3, verses five through seven. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And last, my favorite, Ephesians 2, four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So verse 10 is super straightforward. He's asking God to hear his prayer. That's who God is. That's what he does. And he's saying, be merciful to me. That's who he is. That's what he does. And he's affirming these things as he asks God to rescue him. So let's look at six through 10 altogether now. Six through 10. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. These five verses are saying, It's foolish to trust in yourself, but that's exactly what you'll do when things are good. When things go bad, and they will, even though we don't like it, it's because it's God's sovereign will. We should turn to God in prayer because our hope for rescue, for restoration are only gonna be found in him. It's his name that we are going to praise. It's his name that we should praise. 
Okay, last two verses. Verse 11, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So first, mourning into dancing. We've heard this a lot, it's in songs. It's a very touchy-feely kind of language. What does it mean? It means what once felt like a funeral now feels like a party. Imagine if you went to a funeral of someone that you loved and while you're at the funeral, you became aware they weren't dead. Gross, Carl. Are you saying that he like sits up out of the coffin? Nope, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying maybe he walks in the back of the room. You become aware that he is alive and in the room with you and it's different. Wait, 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 gross. Who's in the coffin now? Listen, I know it's a terrible example, but you get the point. The point is, you would not go from being sad and mournful and tearful and, and, and lamenting the loss of your loved one to being neutral and peaceful and comfortable. Nope, you would go all the way to rejoicing and excited and glad. God does not bring him just out of the pit to comfortability. He does not bring him out of the pit to neutrality. He brings him all the way to joy, to gladness, to dancing. That's what's going on here. God doesn't just take away the morning. He doesn't just return it to neutral. God brings celebration. He turns a funeral into a party. And then he says, you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So God is metaphorically changing his clothes. He's saying, you're wearing sackcloth, which is the symbol of mourning, the symbol of sadness. I'm taking that from you and I'm gonna give you gladness. I'm gonna give you joy. And this is why when we think about this verse and we hear that he takes our mourning and turns it into dancing, and we say, you should worship in all ways that are biblical. You're welcome to do so at Parkway, including dancing, right? This is a biblical way to rejoice and to celebrate who God is and what he's done. So verse 11 is just saying, you, God, you've literally turned my world upside down. You've taken everything that was bad and you've made it good. That's what he's saying. Verse 12 that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This last verse is the psalmist saying, because you have, pardon me, because you have flipped everything on its head and because you've made everything bad become good, I will lift my voice and I will praise your name. That's what he's saying. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice. The psalmist says, my glory, right? He says, my glory will sing your praise and not be silent. Why, does he, why didn't he just say, I will sing your praise? When he says my glory, he's talking about everything that I am, everything in me, every fiber of my being will sing praises to your name. Everything that you have done for me is worthy of all the praise that I could possibly give and I give it to you and I will not be silent. How terrible would it be if he was silent? In the face of that kind of deliverance, silence would just be like this repudiation of what God had done. It would be the opposite of praise. He's saying, let me rejoice and celebrate this properly. Let me do it correctly. And he says, oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. He's saying both in this life now, as well as for eternity, I will praise you for being deliverer. So Psalm 30, this is a Psalm of thanksgiving where the author is focusing on the deliverance from suffering, not the suffering itself, 
And even more than the deliverance, he focuses on the need to praise God as a result. Now, before we stop, I want to kind of get on my little pastoral soapbox in light of this psalm. I've got three kind of things I want to share with you. One is just an exhortation and an encouragement for us as God's people. And the other two are some attributes of God that I believe come out of this text that I want you to hold more tightly to than perhaps you do. So first, the exhortation. We should practice celebrating God when we see prosperity and when we see deliverance in others, right? It seems normal, it seems common for us to cry out to God when we're suffering and to celebrate immediately after he delivers us from something awful, but what about a week later? What about a month later? What about a year later? We gotta be careful, right? When things are going well and we're prospering, do we truly still praise him? And we have to be wary. We have to be careful, church. We don't just give lip service to this idea. Yeah, yeah, things are good. I'm supposed to praise God, so I'll pretend like I do. As a Christian, if you have another Christian ask you the question, how are you? What's a really cute and clever Christian response to that question? Better than I deserve, right? That's cute. It's clever. What's really interesting is it's true. It is a true response, right? That answer is always true. We are always, as Christians, doing better than we deserve because apart from Christ, we deserve hell. But because of Christ, we get something so much better than we deserve. We begin, we come to deserve something new because of what Christ has done. But the, the thing I want you to see here is, do you actually believe that? Do you truly hold that in your heart? Do you believe that it's God's grace and his goodness to you? that things are going well? Or do you instead think that you've somehow earned or merited this favor, this peace, this prosperity that you experience? No, right? It's all grace. It's all of God. So for, in order for us to flee from the temptation to believe those lies, right? In order to make war against the sin of pride that would have us believing that any prosperity that we experience is somehow of our own making, we must practice celebrating and praising God when things are good. It is good and right that we do so. And then what about when we see him rescue someone else, right? Do we genuinely celebrate? The psalmist exhorts us to praise God because of the deliverance that God gave him. Not the deliverance he gave you. He's saying, God delivered me. Come and sing God's praises with me. But would we? If we were in a bed next to him, as sick as him, if indeed sickness is his deal, if we had the same disease and God healed him but not you, would you praise? Would you rejoice? Maybe not. There must be an intentional pursuit of our hearts to praise God, even in moments like those. Okay, two attributes of God that I want us to consider. First, I want you to see and to remember God's sovereignty here. His sovereignty, his in-chargeness is complete. It's total. He isn't just sovereign and good when we perceive that our lives are going well, when we are prosperous, when we're healthy, and then somehow he's gone when things go bad. Right? God is sovereign and he's good even when our lives are falling apart. God was sovereign 
when the psalmist was heading down to the pit and God remained sovereign when he chose to deliver him from Sheol. But is that what we tend to believe? When we're suffering, when things are going bad for us? Not usually. Usually we complain. Maybe not out loud. You might still say better than I deserve, but in your heart you're saying, I believe God has forsaken me. God isn't sovereign. He's not actually in control. He's actually abandoned me in my time of need. I'm being punished undeservedly. This isn't fair. God isn't just. But what does God say to those things? What is God's response to those accusations? Well, when Job endures his sufferings, God's pretty clear. Here's how God responds to Job when he makes those very same accusations. Job 38, verses one through seven. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And God goes on like that for 70 plus verses. And then Job says, oh man, I'm so sorry. I should, I should have kept my mouth shut. I, I will keep my mouth shut moving forward. And God says, I'm not done. And he goes on for 30 more verses. For over 100 verses, God rails on him. God wants him to be abundantly clear that he is sovereign. He wants you and I to be clear that he is sovereign. This God of the universe, the one that hung the stars in the sky, the one that calls them by name, the one who raises up mountains and sends down valleys, the one that tells the ocean, here's how far you can go, no further than this, that God chose you. That God revealed himself to you. That God saved you, and he has made a great many promises to you. Will he not keep them? Will he not keep them? Will he not do everything for his glory and for your good as he's promised? Or will you believe the, the feelings that you have about your circumstances? What if the suffering, what if the difficulty that you experience in this life never ends? What if the cancer doesn't go away? What if your spouse never repents? What if your children rebel and they never come to faith? What if the chronic pain you're dealing with day after day never abates, never relents? What if the fear and the anxiety that twists your heart into knots and that you plead with God, take this from me, never leaves? Will God not keep his promise to you? To resurrect you? To give you a glorified body that lives with him in eternity forever in joy? This is who our God is. He's good. He's gracious. He is merciful. And he is sovereign. He is in charge. His ways are perfect. And those things are true of him no matter how we feel. He is always sovereign. He never changes. Which brings me to the second attribute of God I want us to see here. His immutability. God is deliverer. That's what we see so clearly in this text. 
Whether or not he's currently delivering you, whether or not he's currently delivering someone that you love, it makes no difference. This is one of the things that's true about our God. He is immutable. That means he never changes. You change. I change. Our circumstances change. Our God does not. This is worthy of our praise. The fact that he is deliverer all the time. We should celebrate this. We should give thanks to God because that's who he is. Even if we're not in this moment being delivered or or if we feel like we're being delivered. God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our thanks. Now, a side note here. Often we will consider our suffering and we'll think to ourselves, there's no way, there's no way I can handle this. If a month from now this doesn't go away, I won't be able to handle it. If this is still happening to me a year from now, I will not be able to deal with it. And you're right. Today, you cannot deal with it because you've not been given the grace for that day. You've not been given the grace for next week, next month, next year. You've been given the grace for today. You cannot conceive of handling that future grief and that suffering. You have somebody that you love who's near death and you think to yourself, if they die, I won't be able to deal with it. I won't be able to handle it. Nope, not today you won't. But tomorrow, God will give you the grace you need for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. This is God giving manna to the Israelites in the wilderness and he says, pick up what you need for today, but I'll provide again tomorrow. This is what Jesus is referencing when he teaches his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. God provides, God delivers. And so he is worthy of our praise. Not just when we feel like his grace and mercy have been given to us, he is always worthy. God is worthy of our praise every minute of every day. And that's what the psalmist is asking of us. He says to me, join me. Oh, you saints, in singing praise and giving thanks to his holy name because he's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are indeed deliverer. We thank you that you are merciful, that you are gracious, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you don't change, that you are in charge. We thank you that all of those things are true pray that you'll forgive us where we forget or we don't believe in a moment of weakness or fear or anxiety. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you're good to us, that you give us your word, that it might be illuminated to our hearts, that we might understand and believe who you are and what you've done. That in Christ you have made a way for the wrath that you have towards our sin to be poured out elsewhere. He takes that for us and we're so thankful So will you help us? Will you give us greater faith? I believe, help my unbelief. Will you make that cry of our hearts true? We love you. We thank you for all that you've given to us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.